to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today is Earth Day, which was first celebrated on April 22nd, 1970. And as world leaders gather today virtually for a White House climate summit, President Obama will reportedly announce plans to slash greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030. This as proposed to nations in the Paris Climate Accord that the Biden administration has now rejoined. But is this enough? Environmentalists have long criticized the Paris Agreement for being too modest given the level of devastation of the environment and many also decry what they call false solutions to the climate crisis. They say capitalism and its market-focused economy are at odds with protecting the planet. Our guest is Paula Goa with the German Via Campesina organization. Paula is a beekeeper and a peasant farmer. Also, Japan intends to release uh, dumping more than a million tons of radioactive wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean. This follows the 2011 incident where six atomic power reactors at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear site were severely damaged following a 9.0 magnitude earthquake, which was followed by a tsunami that damaged the nuclear uh, plant. Our guest is Kevin Camps, who has served as radioactive waste watchdog at Beyond Nuclear since 2007. On Thursday, April 22nd, the funeral of Dante Wright will be held. Dante was shot and killed by the police just 10 miles from where George Floyd was killed. And since then, there have been two other police killings of black people, at least that we know about. Our guest is Mick Mike Crenshaw, an anti-racist campaigner raised in Chicago and Minneapolis and now based in Portland, Oregon, where he is the Northwest Regional Director of Hip Hop Congress. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. President Biden has opened a global climate summit with an ambitious pledge to cut U.S. fossil fuel emissions in half by the end of the decade when compared to 2005 levels. The United States sets out on the road to cut greenhouse gases in half, in half by the end of this decade. That's where we're headed as a nation. And that's what we can do if we take action to build an economy that's not only more prosperous, but healthier, fairer, and cleaner for the entire planet. Biden said the U.S. goal is to reach net zero emissions economy-wide by no later than 2050. But environmental groups are demanding the U.S. go farther, faster. The Center for Biological Diversity said a pledge to cut emissions 50 percent by 2030 simply isn't big enough to meet the massive scale of the climate emergency. 
and says the U.S. should cut emissions by at least 70 percent by 2030. The Sunrise Movement said the science is clear. If the U.S. does not achieve much, much more by the end of the decade, it will be a death sentence for our generation and the billions of people at the front lines of the climate crisis in the U.S. and abroad, said the Sunrise Movement. The family of 20-year-old Dante Wright is preparing for his funeral today. It will come just days after guilty verdicts were handed down for the former Minneapolis police officer whose killing of George Floyd set off nationwide protests. A white veteran Brooklyn Center police officer fatally shot Wright on April 11th during a traffic stop. The former police chief said it appeared that the officer used her gun mistakenly instead of her taser. Former officer Kim Potter is charged with second-degree manslaughter. Another protest last night following the fatal police shooting of 16-year-old Micaiah Bryant. An officer shot her after the teen swung a knife first at one woman and then a second who was pinned against a car. In North Carolina, protesters are demanding the release of police body cam footage after a sheriff's deputy shot and killed Andrew Brown while serving a search warrant. Keith Rivers is head of the local NAACP. People are feeling tired, people are frustrated, and people want this to stop. And the only way it's going to stop is if we first have transparency, because transparency brings about trust. And when you have trust, then we can move forward in the march and the fight for justice. Authorities would not provide details of the shooting, but an eyewitness said that Andrew Brown Jr. was shot while trying to drive away and that deputies fired at him multiple times. Witness said the car skidded out of Brown's yard and eventually hit a tree. The North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation is taking over the probe and will turn over its results to the district attorney. The DA says he won't make any decisions about possible charges until the investigation is complete. The House is expected to vote for a second time to grant statehood to Washington, D.C. The legislation would create the new state of Washington Douglas Commonwealth with one representative and two senators. A tiny sliver of land, including the White House, the U.S. Capitol and the National Mall, would remain as a federal district. The measure is expected to pass easily in the House and be sent to the Senate, where the real fight awaits in the evenly divided chamber. An identical statehood bill passed the House last year but quickly died in the then-Republican-controlled Senate. Supporters say D.C. statehood is a racial justice issue. Although Washington, D.C. is no longer majority black, it would become the state with the highest proportion of black residents. D.C. has a larger population than Vermont and Wyoming, but its delegate, Eleanor Holmes Norton, cannot vote in the House. The House of Representatives has approved a bill aimed at barring immigration orders like former President Trump's controversial Muslim travel ban. Christopher Martinez reports. In his first week in office, then-President Donald Trump issued an executive order commonly known as the Muslim Travel Ban, barring people from mainly Muslim-majority countries from entering the U.S. President Joe Biden rescinded that ban in his first week in office. Now the House of Representatives has approved a bill to bar such executive orders in the future. The bill's author, Democrat Judy Chu of California, chairs the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. She presented her No Ban Act on the House floor, saying Trump's ban was needless, wrong, and cruel. While preserving a president's ability to respond to national emergencies like pandemics, this bill amends the Immigration and National Act to require that any future travel ban is based on 
credible facts and actual threats. The No Ban Act passed on a nearly party-line vote of 218 to 208. It goes next to the Senate. I'm Christopher Martinez. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. On April 22, 1970, Earth Day was first celebrated in the United States, calling for the defense of our planet from environmental devastation. Since then, millions of people around the world continue to mark the event annually on April 22. In 1969, a catastrophic oil spill took place off the coast of Santa Barbara, California, where a blowout at an offshore field released up to 100,000 barrels into the Pacific Ocean. At the time, it was the largest oil spill in U.S. history. In response to the disaster, a peace campaigner, John McConnell, called for immediate action, including environmental regulations. At a UNESCO conference held in San Francisco later that year, McConnell proposed the creation of Earth Day, serving as a day for all to honor our planet and demand protections for it. Earth Day was first set to be celebrated on March 21, 1970, which corresponds to the first day of spring. However, it was later moved to April 22, 1970, when McConnell and Dennis Hayes, who was a young student activist, organized teach-ins and demonstrations across the U.S. on that day. Thousands of colleges and universities organized protests against environmental devastation, and millions of people across the U.S. also took to the streets. It was a fusion of movements that had been campaigning against oil spills, toxic dumps, pesticides, freeways, polluting factories, raw sewage, the destruction of forests, and the extinction of wildlife. By the end of 1970, the administration of Richard Nixon was pressed to create the Federal Environmental Protection Agency. Shortly thereafter, important environmental protection laws were passed, including the National Environmental Education Act, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and the Endangered Species Act. These regulations have protected millions from death and disease while also preserving their surrounding environments. By 1990, Earth Day was celebrated in over 130 uh, countries. However, we saw a lot of rollback of environmental protections in the previous administration under Donald Trump. Today, 50 years later, the environmental crisis is just as serious as ever. On Thursday, April 22nd, U.S. President Joe Biden announced plans to slash greenhouse gas emissions in nearly half by 2030 as part of his new commitment to the Paris Climate Agreement. Let us go to a clip now about the politics of Joe Biden's climate agenda. It's from Politico. One of his first acts as president was to announce the climate summit that will happen starting on Earth Day, Thursday, April 22nd, uh, a two-day virtual conference where Joe Biden has invited uh, some three dozen world leaders. And probably the most important thing at the White House climate summit this week will be 
Biden's announcement of a new emissions goal. So to back up for a second, the Paris Agreement uh, requires every signatory to come up with an emissions goal. And the way that the scientists have formulated this is it's a reduction of greenhouse emissions from 2005 numbers by 2030. So most climate experts believe that the United States needs to announce a goal of a 50% reduction, that's 50% below 2005 emissions, by 2030. This uh, climate target is known as the nationally determined contribution. That's the language from the Paris Agreement. And the goal of this is to keep the planet from warming another 1.5 degrees Celsius. Anything below 50% that Biden announces is going to be looked at with uh, not a great deal of enthusiasm uh, from people who care about this issue. It matters for two reasons. One, it'll be a signal domestically to how uh, much this administration really cares about climate change. But two, and probably more importantly, it's a signal internationally to how serious America takes climate change. One subplot to watch for at the climate summit this week is the relationship between the United States and China. Biden is coming into office with a pretty hawkish attitude towards China, uh, but he's trying to balance that with a need to get cooperation from China on a lot of important issues, one of which is climate change. So John Kerry, Biden's international climate envoy, was the first senior administration official to travel to China. And the reports of his trip this week were that it was a pretty productive meeting and that he and his Chinese counterparts saw eye to eye on a few issues. The climate conference this week is virtual. President, Chinese President Xi is supposed to be there and watch to see um, how the United States and the Chinese interact on this issue and whether it's more cooperative or confrontational. So after Joe Biden uh, announced that the United States was returning to the Paris Agreement and after he called for a climate summit in uh, this, this month, um, he put forward a pretty um, large climate-focused infrastructure plan, the American Jobs Plan. It's almost $2.5 trillion worth of spending, but about 50% of that spending has some kind of climate focus to it. All righty, there you go. So um, on this Earth Day, over 40 world leaders, and yes, Chinese President Xi Jinping uh, is attending. Also, Russian President Vladimir uh, Putin. Of course, this is all being held virtually. The other world leaders of large nations will attend, including India's uh, Modi, Brazil's uh, Bolsonaro, Japan's Suga, and Germany's Angela Merkel. Meanwhile, smaller impoverished nations, um, impoverished by capitalism, imperialism, and colonialism, have expressed concern that their demands for financial assistance in tackling climate change will go unmet. 
impoverished countries were promised $100 billion a year in climate finance from 2020. More than a decade ago, at the troubled Copenhagen Climate Summit, in 2009. However, that decades-long commitment repeated in the 2015 Paris Agreement was never, ever met. I'd like to welcome our guest now, uh, Paula uh, Gioa. Um, and Paula is an environmentalist, um, part of the German branch of Via Campesina. La Via Campesina is a global movement of over 200 million small-scale food producers, land and migrant workers, indigenous peoples, rural women, and youth who are fighting for food sovereignty and agroecology as true solutions to the climate crisis. Paula is a European representative in the International Coordination Committee of La Via Campesina. Uh, Paula is a peasant farmer and a beekeeper. Paula, thank you for joining us. Hello. Thanks very much for the invitation. <laughs> okay, and uh, all the best to Earth Day uh, to you. And uh, Paula, um, first, your thoughts that, as I said, a number of environmentalists have been critical of the Paris Climate Accord for being not enough, for being way too weak. And people are also um, very much opposed to what they're calling false solutions to the climate crisis. Your thoughts on both of these? Yes, definitely. Uh, the Paris Agreement is not enough. No, it's also important to consider that uh, many of the actors know, uh, uh, being around this uh, negotiations uh, table are the ones who are uh, mostly contributing to all the pollution. No, So it's not only the states, there's quite a lot of influence from corporations. Uh, when it comes to agriculture, they are the ones uh, pushing forward some uh, kind of solutions they call, no, but uh, that from our point of view, they are clearly false solutions, no, they are solutions uh, actually uh, aiming their own profit, no, and not really uh, the reduction of emissions, no, uh, not uh, aiming climate justice, no, not aiming, um, yeah, uh, yeah, future for, for humanity uh, in the earth, no, but uh, their own profit, so... Uh, we definitely think that uh, when we talk about uh, climate, we have to bring the justice dimension into it. You know? um, uh, we have to consider the ones who are on the front line. Uh, we have to consider the uh, front line solutions to that. And in terms of agriculture, we have to consider that agriculture is responsible for around 50 percent you know, of all the greenhouse gas emissions, you know, so um, agriculture is extremely important to take into account when we talk about pollution, um, but we have to talk about the right reasons for that, and uh, they are not the ones put forward by member states, you know, influenced by corporate power. Yeah, and what about uh, these false solutions as well? I mean, I'm reading a headline uh, today um, from Fortune magazine um, that says, Pet 
PepsiCo is betting on big on regenerative agriculture. So increasingly, at least in the United States, we're seeing ads from Chevron, from big oil companies, from British Petroleum, etc. And now PepsiCo talking about how green they are and how much they're doing for the environment. I mean, your thoughts on this? I mean, is it really possible for these multinational corporations to continue to make the profit that they are making and some way somehow become green and protect the planet. Paula. Yes, uh, from our point of view, this is uh, the so-called uh, so uh, greenwashing, no? Uh, they put forward uh, very fancy names as solutions, no? Like climate smart agriculture, uh, for example, no? Um, and uh, they are all based, for example, in the uh, quite a lot on high tech, you know, in the digitalization, industrialization of agriculture and so on. Um, but, uh, and, and of course they, they have a discourse saying why this is, uh, good for the, for the, for the environment because it needs less, um, uh, you have to work less land and so on, but, uh, at the same time you have to use much more, uh, or you have to use, uh, agrochemicals, you no, know, to compensate it. Um, so in the end, uh, all these uh, solutions they uh, they they go on the cost of you know autonomy of uh, peasants. No, uh, they go on the cost of uh, losing biodiversity. No, uh, and all these are things that are, would be important you know, when we consider uh, really uh, a reduction of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. No, it's not uh, about digital digitalizing everything, and then uh, we have the solution, you know. Um, so we as the Campesina are putting forward, uh, for example, uh, the ideas of food sovereignty, of uh, just transition of agroecology, you know. So uh, it's not only about uh, the practices, uh, how we uh, conduct agriculture, it's also about this, you know. Uh, taking into account, uh, for example, our, our traditional knowledge and so on. Um, but it's also about social relations uh, with uh, the environment, uh, I mean, the relations with the environment, but also the social relations with our local community, you know. So um, producing for the global market, you know, uh, through industrialized agriculture is not a solution. We have to focus our local market. So uh, everything is connected, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, how we have been uh, uh, putting forward our, our real solutions for, for the whole problem. There is a proposal that has come out from the Green New Deal for Europe demanding a care income for people, an income for people who are doing caring work for each other, but also caring for the environment. I don't know if you have know about it or have discussed it, but I wonder if you have any uh, quick thoughts on that. Paula. Yeah, I think uh, maybe... Um, it's uh, quite interesting uh, what the European Union uh, is doing. Now, on one hand, they are coming uh, with proposals as the Green Deal, where we have uh, the, the farm to fork strategy, you know, and the biodiversity strategy, which are actually quite, uh, quite, uh, yeah, progressive and quite interesting, and which we very much uh, agree with. At the same time, the European, uh, the European Union is right now. 
uh, almost finalizing the, the reform of the common agriculture policy, you know. Um, and both are not coherent with each other, you know. Um, so what we as European uh, coordination, we are trying to, to, to do is like to demand uh, policy coherence in, 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 within the European Union, you know. Uh, we think it's extremely important to have... Uh, Fair conditions, you know, for for for, for peasants, for land workers, and, and so on. And at the same time, you know, uh, to um, to have um, um, kind of uh, the promotion of um, uh, environment standards in agriculture as well. You know? and at the moment, what we see is this incoherence in the negotiations of the common agriculture policy. Uh, and the European uh, Green Deal, um, yeah, both coming from the uh, European Union. Right. Yes. Yes. I, I I understand, and I think there is a difference with this Green New Deal for Europe and what's coming out of the European Parliament. But we will continue this uh, conversation. Uh, Paula Agioa, who is with uh, Via Campesina of uh, Germany. Those of you who want to find out more about Via Campesino, you could look them up. They're doing a lot of work, not only in Germany and other parts of Europe, but around the world. Paula, thank you so very much for joining us and for yes. your work. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. And we also want to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. We partner with them for our weekly Earth Watch and our weekly Earth Minute. In fact, our Earth Minute will come up. We're going to take an early uh, station break. And coming up, our weekly Earth Minute. And then what is going on? Another um, issue to watch on this Earth Day of Japan approving, releasing um, radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean and also Mike Crenshaw on the latest police killings of black people. Stay with us, we'll be right back. Hold on to me, don't let me go. Who cares what they see? Who cares what they know? Your first name is free, last name is dumb. She will still believe in where we're from. song Freedom by Farrell Williams. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org. And if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at sotrueradio. And we're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Florida. Unfortunately, the GE Mosquitoes have been released there, so we wish them well. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, um, where a, a terrible incident of a volcano has displaced a number of people, and also of my island nation of Barbados, where the ash has covered the island. So we are thinking of those in the Caribbean uh, region uh, today. Uh, we, this is Sojourner Truth, your host, Margaret Prescott. We're going to have our weekly Earth Minute. And then what is going on about radioactive wastewater being released into the Pacific Ocean? Popular herbicide products are threatening bee species, according to a new study in the Journal of Applied Ecology. 
The study shows that inner ingredients found in products like Roundup, whose active ingredient is the controversial herbicide glyphosate, are highly toxic to bumblebees. Unlike active ingredients like glyphosate, inner ingredients are not subjected to a mandatory set of tests by the Environmental Protection Agency. The study shows fatal results when bumblebees are exposed to these deadly substances, including some that appear to block the bee's ability to breathe. According to the Center for Biological Diversity, the researchers finding that the various inert ingredients added to each formulation played a significant role in mortality rates suggests that the EPA's current practice of just looking at the impacts of active ingredients fails to provide adequate protections. We need adequate regulatory agencies that have the capacity to properly assess products that pose hazards to wildlife, public health, and the environment. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church from Global Justice Ecology Project. All righty, and this is Margaret Prescott now uh, to give a context, a background to our next discussion in 2011, six atomic power reactors at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear site in Japan were severely damaged after a 9.0 magnitude earthquake in the Pacific Ocean rocked the area. The earthquake generated a 45-foot tall tsunami that overcame the nuclear plant's sea walls flooding the nuclear site's lower levels. The earthquake and subsequent tsunami was responsible for close to 16,000 deaths, over 6,000 injured people, and uh, 2,529 missing people. This according to the National Police Agency of Japan. As a result of the tsunami, there were three nuclear meltdowns three hydrogen explosions, and mass contamination of the region. More than 160,000 people were forced from their homes after the meltdowns at the plant, this according to ABC News Australia. The plant's operator, Tokyo Electric Power Co., or TEPCO, overlooked numerous warnings prior to the disaster and carried on business as usual. TEPCO officials were also reluctant to adopt global safety standards, which could have prevented the disaster. Although the number of deaths as a result of the earthquake and tsunami surpassed those of the nuclear disaster, it still had a wide global impact, such as the spread of radioactive materials across the Pacific Ocean. Experts estimate that between 20 to 40 trillion uh, units that are used to measure radioactivity of tritium have been released into the ocean between 2011 and 2013. In 2018, the Japanese government acknowledged for the first time that a worker at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear site died from radiation exposure following the disaster. It was classified as a level seven event, the highest level on the international nuclear event scale by the International Atomic Energy Agency. This made it the second worst nuclear disaster in human history after the 1986 Chernobyl disaster in the former Soviet Union, in which there were at least 42 acute and prolonged deaths. In September 2019, three former top executives of TEPCO were acquitted 
of professional negligence resulting in death and injury related to the disaster. Let us go now to a clip about what's happening now of Japan now releasing this contaminated water into the Pacific Ocean. The Japanese government plans to release treated wastewater from the destroyed Fukushima nuclear plant into the ocean in two years. Officials are assuring the public that the more than one million tons of treated and diluted radioactive water will be safe. But the decision is being met with opposition at home and abroad. Lucy Kraft explains. Within two years, Japan says it will start releasing treated radioactive water from the Fukushima nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean. Now, Tokyo insists this can be done safely. The water will be decontaminated and diluted to safe levels. But many residents here remain firmly opposed. Protesters gathered at the prime minister's residence in downtown Tokyo to denounce the government's decision. Over one million tons of contaminated water looms over the Fukushima power plant, a massive tank farm big enough to fill 500 Olympic-sized swimming pools. The government says it's run out of room. Japanese Prime Minister Suga said years of study by his advisors concluded that ocean discharge was the most feasible alternative. He said the International Atomic Energy Agency also supports this plan as scientifically reasonable. The decision to dump Fukushima wastewater has drawn fire from neighboring Asian countries and local fishermen. Critics like Greenpeace nuclear specialist Sean Burney argue Japan should continue storing wastewater near the stricken Fukushima plant. Deliberately discharging and contaminating the Pacific Ocean after decades of contamination already from the nuclear industry, from nuclear weapons testing, is just not acceptable. The actual release of water will take decades to complete. And meanwhile, critics are saying that independent monitors should be allowed to verify that radioactive levels are in fact safe. Okay, now I'd like to welcome our guest, Kevin Camps, who served as radioactive waste watchdog at Beyond Nuclear since 2007. Beyond Nuclear advocates for an energy future that is sustainable, benign, and democratic. Uh, Kevin, thank you for joining us. Hi, Margaret. Okay, so Kevin, the government of Japan, they're saying that dumping the wastewater doesn't present a threat to people or the environment. Nevertheless, uh, uh, the fishing community, environmental groups, neighboring countries are up in arms about this, are opposed to this. Your thoughts, is, is the government right? What are, what are the concerns about this? No, the Japanese government and Tokyo Electric and even the International Atomic Ener Energy Agency are wrong. Dilution is not the solution to radioactive pollution. It's another blow to the ocean, and what they don't want to talk about is that the radioactive contamination still in this wastewater at astronomical levels in terms of tritium, which is radioactive hydrogen, will reconcentrate in the seafood, and people are at the top of that food chain. So that is going to be another exposure to harmful radioactivity. And tritium, radioactive hydrogen, can go anywhere in the human body that hydrogen goes, which is everywhere, right down to the DNA molecule where it can do its damage. Yeah, now with a big deal, you know, uh, today on uh, it being Earth Day, all the best to you, Kevin, uh, for this Earth Day. Um, the White House 
the, the thank you, the Biden administration uh, holding a virtual summit with over 40 leaders uh, from around the world, including uh, Suga, the, the leader in Japan there. And uh, the Biden administration making a very, very big deal about uh, the environment and environmental policies and have um, named uh, John Kerry as the climate uh, envoy. Nevertheless, the United States has thrown its weight uh, behind uh, this move um, from Japan. I mean, are they giving any explanation uh, for this? I mean, are there any options, other options available than releasing this stuff into the Pacific Ocean? I mean, I understand the impact on fish and on people, but I imagine there are other impacts as well um, in terms of life in the ocean and on the land. Kevin? Yeah, the um, simple explanation, unfortunately, is that the U.S. government, like the Japanese government, and like the U.N. International Atomic Energy Agency, are all pro-nuclear power. That's their policy. And that's even true of the Biden administration, unfortunately. And so we have a big fight on our hands to prevent this ongoing radioactive contamination of our environment, which is one of the downsides of nuclear power. And it's important to note that even normally operating so-called routine tritium releases from nuclear power plants happen all the time. So there's an infamous statement from a Tokyo Electric spokesman in the earliest weeks of this catastrophe who said, why are people getting so worked up about these oceanic releases? We would release 10% this much during routine operations, and that's very telling. So, yes, there are other impacts as well. Um, it's not just the tritium. There are scores of different radioactive poisons in this wastewater. The Japanese government, even this UN agency, would say, hey, these are permissible, these are allowable. That does not mean safe, but unfortunately it's often reported as safe. Any exposure to ionizing radioactivity, no matter how small, carries a health risk of cancer and other maladies, and those risks accumulate over a lifetime of exposure. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I'm reading that a June 2012 Stanford University study estimated that the radioactivity release from Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant could be responsible for 130 deaths from cancer globally and 199 cancer cases in total. I mean, those numbers seem a little conservative uh, to me, but the, in 2013, the World Health Organization reported um, that for populations living in most affected areas, there's a 70% higher risk of developing thyroid cancer for girls exposed as infants, a 7% higher risk of leukemia in males exposed as infants, a 6% higher risk of breast cancer in women exposed as infants and a 4% higher risk overall of developing solid cancers uh, for females. So there, you know, there really is a lot of concern here. But Kevin, following the disaster, and I think you were one of the first people, if I recall correctly, that we spoke to on this show following the disaster, I was frantically uh, calling experts in the area. We know that Germany said no to, to um, uh, nuclear power. However, we see that nuclear power, as you said, is embraced still um, by this administration and by other countries around the world now trying to get away from fossil fuels. Um, you know, 
I guess what you're saying is that nuclear energy really isn't a solution. I mean, it's being put forward as a clean solution. Just give us your final thoughts on, on that. Yes, nuclear power is way too expensive and way too slow to serve as a climate solution. It will not even show up at the starting gate and the climate catastrophe will have come and gone by that point. And it would rob the money from the actual solutions, which are energy efficiency and renewables like wind and solar. That's the way to go. And you would ask, what else could be done with this radioactive wastewater? As Sean Burney from Greenpeace International said, it simply needs to be stored for about 125 years to allow the tritium to radioactively decay. So it needs to be stabilized where it's at, and it needs to uh, be protected that whole time, not dumped into the seafood supply of the world. Right. Well, um, Kevin, for people who want to keep up um, with what you're doing and with um, Beyond Nuclear, what should they do? Well, our website is beyondnuclear.org, and as the Chernobyl 35th anniversary is about to take place on April 26th, please check out that section of our website where actually casualties are probably more like more than a million deaths attributable to Chernobyl. Wow, <laughs> unbelievable. Well, uh, Kevin Kemps, thank you so very much uh, for your work and taking the time to join us today. All the best. Thanks, thank Margaret. you. You too. Happy Earth Day. All righty. And uh, now we, this is Margaret Prescott, host of uh, Sojourner Truth. We're now going to spend the rest of the hour with uh, Mike Crenshaw because, well, huh, Thursday, April 22nd, Earth Day, funeral is scheduled to be held for Dante Wright, the 20-year-old black father who was shot and killed in Minnesota on April 11th, just 10 miles from where George Floyd was killed. Um, the funeral uh, for Mr. Wright scheduled to start at noon local time at Shiloh Temple International Ministries in Minneapolis. Civil rights leader, the Reverend Al Sharpton, is expected to eulogize the event. Um, attorney Crump will also uh, be there. Dante was murdered at, in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. And uh, then also on Wednesday, April 22nd, uh, 40 two-year-old black man, Andrew Brown, was shot and killed in North Carolina by sheriff's deputies carrying out a search warrant. And prior to that shooting, on Tuesday, April 20th, I mean, it seems like practically every day, 16-year-old Micaiah Bryant was shot and killed by Columbus, Ohio, a police officer. Uh, let us go to a clip uh, now about what happened with this now latest, yet again, another police killing of a black man, this time um, a father, Andrew Brown, Jr. <laughs> Right now, let it stop here in Pennsylvania. Let it stop here. We're going to show the rest of the world how we stop it. State officials in North Carolina are investigating the fatal police shooting of a black man on Wednesday, according to authorities and local media reports. The shooting unfolded Wednesday morning in Elizabeth City, a community where half the population identifies as African American, near North Carolina's coastal border with Virginia. Authorities identified the victim as a 40-year-old father, Andrew Brown Jr., whose relatives told local media that he was near his home in a car at the time of the shooting. 
County Sheriff Tommy Wooten said deputies shot him after trying to serve him a search warrant without adding further details. It's been a tragic day today that started at approximately 8.30 a.m. during the search warrant at 421 Perry Street by Pasquotank County Sheriff's deputies. Andrew Brown Jr. was fatally wounded during this search warrant. Wooten added that all deputies at the scene were wearing body cameras and that the deputy who fired the gun has been placed on leave. Law enforcement officials did not say whether Brown was armed at the time or whether he was considered a threat to the officers. The shooting comes a day after former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was found guilty of murdering George Floyd, an event that sparked anti-racism protests worldwide. No justice! No as news of the North Carolina shooting spread, local media showed protesters beginning to gather as the city council called an emergency meeting to discuss the case and a possible curfew. People are feeling tired, people are frustrated, and people want this to stop. And the only way it's going to stop is if we first have transparency because transparency brings about trust. And when you have trust, then we can move forward in the march and the fight for justice. All righty, so now I'd like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, uh, Mike Crenshaw, born and raised in Chicago and Minneapolis, currently residing in Portland, uh, Oregon. Mike Crenshaw is an organizer for the African Hip Hop Caravan and uses cultural activism as a means to develop international solidarity related to human rights and justice through hip hop and popular education. Mike is the Northwest Regional Director of Hip Hop Congress. Mike Crenshaw, welcome back. Thank you, Margaret. I'm happy to be here. You know, Mike, it seems as though every time you, you've been on, and you've been on a few times now, between the times that we talk with you, there's either one or two of more of these uh, police killings. So now we have Andrew Brown uh, Jr. in um, North Carolina. And prior to that, um, we have uh, Makia Bryant. Um, both different circumstances, but nevertheless, both white police officers, it seems, killing black people. Your response to these two latest um, killings this within the context of, you know, Dante and George Floyd and the verdict, you also likely would want to give your thoughts on the verdict. Mike. Yeah, so, you know, first I want to say, um, you know, Andrew Brown, Micaiah Bryant, and there's another name I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add to this list, and that is of uh, Robert Douglas Delgado, who was murdered last week in Portland, Oregon, while he was having a mental health crisis. Um, these, uh, these names have to be remembered and honored. And I'm going to recall a study that was done a few years back by the Malcolm X grassroots movement in which they said that a black person was killed every 28 hours um, by by deadly force, by deadly force, by police. And if it wasn't the police, it was somebody that was self-deputized, like George Zimmerman, in the case of Trayvon Martin, or a security guard, 
But nonetheless, what you have, what we have in this, this country when we talk about gun safety and the crisis of mass shootings is we have a parallel crisis. For people who are in positions of authority with weapons are using deadly force disproportionately against black people, people of color, and other marginalized populations. The frequency with which we're dying, I think is part, we know, we now understand it's part of the largest uh, problem that is really part of the core of cultural institutions, political institutions, and the reality of this society. So since it took hundreds of years for us to arrive at this current moment, and the, the killing has been part of that history, I do not foresee the killing stopping any time soon. I think the challenges we face are sustaining social movement in a way that doesn't burn us out, um, in a way that continues to draw a broader mass population into the movement. Because it's only with these mass social movements that we create the kind of awareness across the board that puts pressure on these police departments and that the education around what needs to happen, for instance, things like uh, doing away with qualified immunity, begins to make the type of reforms possible that can end the lack of accountability by police who murder us. Eventually, we want abolition of police in our communities. Right, and, and Mike, there's a big debate now going on in, in Washington, D.C. There is the piece of legislation uh, named after uh, George Brown. Then um, there is the larger um, package that the Biden administration and Democrats had uh, around police reform had hoped to get through. And now negotiations are going on with black Republican Senator uh, Tim Scott, um, with uh, Cory Booker, of uh, another black senator from uh, New Jersey. And on the House side, Representative Karen Bass, who's here from out of, of Los Angeles, is involved in these negotiations. And it seems as though they're trying to come to some uh, agreement on what they hope to be uh, major legislation on police reform. And people are thinking that if it's ever going to have a chance at all, now is the time to do it. But, Mike, the worry is, is that either the passage of either one of those are in doubt. They likely will go through the House uh, by, uh, you know, it has passed the House in, by narrow uh, party lines. But in the Senate, it's running into a problem in the Senate. So it just seems as though when these killings happen or incidences happen, there's studies that are done and recommendations that are made and a lot of hand-wringing hand that happens. But when it comes to policy change, we really don't see too much uh, happening. And I wonder your thoughts on that, because your focus is building the movement on the street and the impact that that might then have uh, to push those in the halls of power. Mike Crenshaw. Well, it's not 
so much from from my perspective about pushing those in the halls of power as it is about making sure that we transform our consciousness around the issues, making sure that we're informed and um, very radical as well as historically historically accurate and scientific ways about how to view this problem with policing. And this problem with policing can't be separated from the history of white supremacy and racial terror in this country that was really part of formation, especially in the South, of police departments in general, in terms of slave control and the control of black bodies and the control of indigenous bodies through violence. We need to understand that the reason the, the, the legal apparatus Okay, in terms of, of legislative action and the creation of laws that actually have teeth that get passed or don't pass, the reason the movement is slow in terms of legal reform is because we're relying on a system that has been populated generation after generation by human beings who serve the interests of the status quo and of the wealthy, which has historically been white, male, land-owning people. We have to understand that there are people who are alive today who live through the craze of lynching in this country, which ultimately has not stopped. So we're not dealing with ancient history. We're, we're really dealing with current times that are part of the historical continuum. And that there are still people breathing today who were fighting some of the same battles that were continuing to fight. I, I think that legal reform is, is one tool in our tool belt. I think that pushing for legal reform is one tactic in a diversity of tactics. We are going to have to understand that the police are going to remain a deadly threat to our existence. The question, in addition to what we can do legally, is how do we organize ourselves and our communities so that our lives are protected in ways that are greater than they are currently? And at the same time that we organize for community community defense in alternate ways of taking care of issues that's that stems from economic instability and transgenerational poverty in our community, things that would be deemed crime that actually have root causes, in addition to protecting our communities and improving our standards of living, how do we hold police accountable so that they begin to understand that it's not okay, it's not safe, they will lose their jobs, And at some point, the consequences to their lives will look more evenly like the consequences to our lives. Right. We, we just have about 30 seconds or so, Mike, but I was uh, just uh, listening to a report on the 
NFAC uh, coalition, which is a coalition of black militia groups that seem to be growing in states across the country. And I assume I know there's a lot of concern about people figuring out how to defend themselves. And, and some black people are learning how to use weapons. Others are getting bear spray and other things that they have in their cars or walk around. I mean, th this is just what time it is where you're feeling so at risk that people are resorting to these kinds of, of means. Just a, a very quick comment, Mike. Well, I think that the reason that, that, that people are often getting shot in traffic stops is not because they're a threat to police. It's because they fear for their own safety and survival. So you have yeah. incidences where black folks are pulling away in their vehicles. That happened with DeWante Wright, okay? That happened with Andrew Brown. And you have to ask yourself, were these people afraid that they were not going to make it home, that they actually followed orders for the police? We have uh, the... Uh, Adam Toledo in Chicago, the young, young Latinx man, who actually complied after he ran initially, probably because he feared for his life and legal consequences, but when he finally complied, he was killed. So yeah. we understand that we're, we're still looking at a problem where we're not safe. In terms of arming ourselves for self-defense, it might be a necessary consequence, but I can't say that that is going to make us safer if the police are going to further justify that as a means to escalate their fear in relation to coming in contact with us. So there are just too many uh, questions around that, Margaret. Right. And they, they have more weapons than we do. Well, Mike, we'll have you back to continue this conversation, but we are out of time now. Thank you so much for your work and for joining us. And we'd also like to thank all of today's guests and wish everyone a happy Earth Day. I'd like to thank Kiana Williams, our audio engineer, assistant producer Romero Funes, today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Y'all, please stay safe. We've been